You're listening to Episode 1 of Widowcast from Joanne the Life Coach. Welcome listeners, it's Joanne Philomena from Joanne the Life Coach. Today I'd like to share more of my own personal backstory, uh, more about the story of when my husband died, how I lost my husband. I know that we each have our own unique story. For some, it was a long drawn out process due to a long illness. For others, like myself, it was quite sudden. And I don't know if one is easier to deal with than the other. I've talked about that to groups of widow friends of mine uh, before. And the general consensus is that it's just, it's all hard. It's just all hard. But I'm hoping that in sharing my story with you, it helps you work through your own story and also lets you know me a little better and where I'm coming from. Jim and I met, oh, about 22 years ago now, and um, it was a second marriage for me. It was later in life for both of us. He was in his 50s. He had retired very young from teaching. I was just turning 40 when we got married. And we were married for 20 years. We had been together about a year before we got married. Jim did always have um, issues with his heart shortly after we were married, one month to the day. As a matter of fact, I rushed him to an emergency room because he was having chest pain. And he had been scheduled by his doctor to have a cardiac cath done. Um, He was dragging his feet about it. Well, on that admission, he was scared enough that he was ready to let them go ahead with that. They had told him, the good news is you haven't had a heart attack. The bad news is you're sure trying. We got him moved to a different hospital and the cardiac cath done. And apparently it was pretty touch and go there. They scheduled his bypass surgery immediately and the surgeon that came in said well I just happened to have the morning off tomorrow which he chuckled it wasn't true he cleared his schedule of everything to get Jim into the operating room and he underwent quadruple bypass he was also diabetic this was all inherited. All the men in his family had the same issues with arteries clogging and diabetes. He took very good care of himself and followed very cautious diet guidelines um, and was always in terrific shape. Better shape than I was in most of the time. Jim was able to just walk all over New York City without even giving it a second thought. So even though we knew always that he would probably pass away before I did because he was 16 years older than I was and his heart issues it still it wasn't a reality for me you know you don't expect that I even got to the point that I used to give him a bad time because he would say you know I'm gonna die someday and I say promises promises you keep promising me (laughs) So 
when it happened, we had just been here at home chatting in the kitchen. He was making himself a cappuccino. And when he was done, he said, well, I'm going to go upstairs to my computer. And I said, okay, good. I'm going in my office. And he went upstairs and I came into my office and I heard the thud. And first I ran to look down the basement stairs. I don't know why I thought he could have fallen down the basement. Um, then, of course, once I got to the basement stairs, looked down, I realized, no, no, he was going upstairs. So I headed upstairs, and as I was running up the stairs, I could see him on the bathroom floor. And when I got to him and turned him over, he was already turning blue. So I remember sitting there for just a couple seconds, just saying, breathe, Jim, you have to breathe, you're not breathing. And then I ran for the phone, dialed 911. Back in the bathroom with 911 on speaker, I began applying CPR. And I do remember at some point yelling back at the phone saying, listen, lady, I'm crap at this. You just need to get the guys here. <laughs> because I really wasn't sure that I was even doing it correctly. When they arrived, they came running upstairs shortly after that and said, does he have... Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it, it's his wishes on to whether he would want to be resuscitated or not. And I said, he's just always told me, never pull the plug. And they said, that's all we need to hear. And they grabbed him and tried to intubate him, and they couldn't intubate him. So they just bagged him. Um, they were applying CPR. They were applying the shock paddles. They had pulled him out into the hallway. I backed into my bedroom so they would have room. But now I was trapped. I was trapped there watching them work on him. They cut his clothes off. It was very difficult to watch. And as I watched the clock and I saw 20 minutes go by from the time I knew I'd called 911. And I began to think... It might not be a good thing if they do revive him at that point. I was really scared because I knew that he had been without oxygen for too long. Um, there had suddenly appeared a police officer in the guest room across the hall from where I was. And at one point, he stepped over Jim while they were working on him into my room and said, this must be hard to look at. And I said, yeah, it is. And he was really amazing and compassionate. And I'm not sure how he even got from the guest room over to my room. And later in hindsight, he had been there with me the whole time. And I'm not even sure if he was real, to be honest. I tend to think he may have been just a guardian angel that stepped out of that room into my room. Finally, the EMS said we're taking him to the emergency room and went downstairs, this house full of EMS and police officers and firemen, and they all quickly disappeared, except for the one officer who said, do you need me to call someone? And I said, no, there's, there's really no one to call. And he said, I can drive you to the emergency room, but I can't promise I would still be there to get you home. And I said, no, no, it's okay. I'll be able to drive. Just let me get my things. And I just, in a fog, got 
my purse and my keys and locked up my house, drove as cautiously as I could to the emergency room because I knew that I was in a fog and I, I didn't want to make any bad moves. When I got there, this guardian angel officer was there and um, he said, I followed you, you ma'am, you're an excellent driver. And I remember saying, I just know that I'm really freaked out, so I had to be careful. And he told me to have a seat in the outside area, outside of the emergency room, which was different. There had been a couple times in the past that Jim had fainted and um, we got him to the ER and they always let me ride into the ER with him. This time they wanted me to wait outside. So I kind of knew that things were not good. Then another officer came out with my guardian angel officer trailing him and said, are you Mrs. Philomena? And I said, yes. And he said, this kind of noisy and distracting out here. We have a, a quieter place for you to um, wait. And he took me back to a small room in the hospital. And that's when I knew when they moved me back to a small room by myself, I knew Jim was gone. Um, shortly thereafter, the doctor came in and said, we've not been able to resuscitate him and we've taken a scan and it shows no brain activity. So uh, it's my recommendation that we stop CPR at this point. And I agreed. I said, of course, if there's no brain activity, then stop. So the doctor disappeared, and shortly thereafter, a nurse came in and uh, took me back to where his body was so that I could say goodbye. It was hard. It was in the, the ER room, and he was still intubated, um, and it still was not real to me. It just wasn't, but I was really calm. I just, I mean, I hugged him. I sat there with him a few minutes, but I just felt like... I just needed to go home and I walked out and asked the nurse what do I do now and she said all you need to do is call uh, the funeral home of your choice and they'll take care of everything and I said okay and when I came out the guardian angel officer was there and said are you okay to drive and I said yes I, I am okay I think I'm just fine and I thanked him and he said um, I'm still on nights if I'm ever on days, or I think he said the next week he was going to be on days. And he said, I, I might stop by, but I'll always be watching and checking on you. And I thanked him and I left. And it didn't occur to me at the time. I mean, I didn't question even the reality of that police officer at the time. It was only weeks later I looked back at that and thought, oh my gosh, was he even a real person? Was he truly a guardian angel of some sort. I don't know, but wow, what a police officer. So compassionate and so wonderful. I, he made such a difference to me on that night. I drove myself home from the hospital. The hospital was really only five, 10 minutes at the most from my house. So it, it wasn't far. And when I got home, I came in and I sat down in my chair in the living room and I looked at the time on my TV and it had been less than an hour from the time that I called 911. It was less than an hour from the time that Jim and I had been chatting in the kitchen. And I thought, how can that be? 
how can it be that it hasn't even been an hour and he's gone? It just felt so odd to me, like it should have been a longer process than that for Jim to have died and for me to have been there at the hospital and come home. And I realized that I needed to phone people. So I picked up the phone and I called his sons from his first marriage who lived a couple hours away from me to let them know it was very hard to tell them their dad had passed away and I remember calling my sister and her husband and they just cried hysterically and letting my daughter know I wondered what was wrong with me that I was not crying the people I was phoning to tell them that Jim had passed away were sobbing and I had no tears I even questioned if I really had loved him like I thought I did because I wasn't crying. I felt like something was broken inside of me that I wasn't crying. I mean, I really couldn't understand. And, you know, I had just basically told everybody, you know, don't know, you don't need to rush over. I really don't even know what it is I need or what it is I want, maybe by morning, give me a day because this isn't even real to me yet. I really didn't want people to to come rush to my side because I didn't even know what was going on with me. Um, the next morning, I that night I, I barely slept. I mean, it felt like my whole body was just buzzing with electricity. And I couldn't sleep, and I didn't fall asleep until about 6 o'clock in the morning. And then by 8 o'clock, my phone was ringing, and it was Jim's sons saying they decided that the right thing to do would be to drive up, and that they were um, almost to the exit to pull off into Kingston, where I was. So um, I had to bounce out of bed immediately because it meant they were only maybe 10 minutes away. And I ran and got dressed and put the coffee on and tried to run a brush through my hair before they got there. So that entire day was really, I don't even know what we did. I think we just sat and looked at the TV. Um, I gave them coffee. We went out to for lunch, I had called the funeral home and was meeting with the funeral director that afternoon. So they decided to stick around so they could go to that appointment with me so I didn't have to go alone. Um, and we met with the funeral director and made the plans. And Jim had not wanted a, a funeral of any sort. So they took an hour to go ahead and prepare a private viewing for us so that we could come back in and his sons could say goodbye. It was very nice. They had set him up in the casket covered, um, I mean, open for them to see him and say goodbye before he was going to go off and be cremated. And then they went home and I came home and still wondering why I hadn't cried. And it was not until the very next morning after that, that I woke up and I got ready to go downstairs and I stopped at the first step and had to sit down at the top of the stairs and cry. And once I kind of pulled it together, I started down the stairs and I had to stop halfway down the staircase. And it's not that long of a staircase. Um, and I had to sit down and have a bit of a cry again 
and then I continued down the stairs and got to the first chair in my living room and had to sit down and cry at the first chair and finally was able to stop crying long enough to get into the kitchen to make myself a cup of coffee and it was actually a relief a little bit to know that I could cry it took me more than 24 hours after he had passed away for me to cry and then a couple days later a friend called she wasn't a friend then I only knew of her Jim used to volunteer um, at the local hospital gift shop and she's one of the ladies that managed the gift shop he didn't work on her shift it was the other manager that he volunteered on her shifts but Darlene knew of Jim and Darlene had been a widow I think for almost a year at that time and she called me she reached out widow to widow it was one of the best phone calls I could have gotten at that time Darlene was wonderful and her first words to me were Joanne you need to understand that you're in shock and when she said it as soon as she said it it made perfect sense to me and I understood completely this is why I couldn't cry that night I was in a state of shock almost this was not just emotional shock physical shock truly in shock from having watched him die um, it was like I was wrapped in layers and layers of cotton and gauze to protect me and the shock takes a long time to slowly wear off it's the way your mind takes care of you after that kind of loss where at first you are in a complete fog but slowly the layers start to come off and a little pain seeps in and a little more pain seeps in but the pain is so great your brain does protect you for a long long time so it comes slowly 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 the other thing Darlene told me was as a widow you get a pass for the first year you just get a total pass on everything because you're gonna misplace things you're gonna do stupid stuff you wouldn't normally do and you just get a pass on that and if you need to dance naked in your living room with the drapes open you get a pass on that this is your first year so find whatever makes you happy to do and you do whatever you need and whatever makes you happy and to Darlene I say I can never repay you for that phone call and for the phone calls that followed and the dinners together and uh, wonderful wonderful stuff I hope that Darlene is one of the people that I can have come as a guest because I would love for her to share her story and uh, the story about the friends that she made shortly after becoming widowed she has an awesome little support group for herself with four other widows I think there's five of them and they kind of take care of each other and I'll talk more about that on the next episode but that's it that's kind of the background on how um, I became a widow and what it was like for that first day afterwards thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed the story and I would love to hear more about your story I would love to hear from you you can reach me at Joanne 
at joannethelifecoach.com. That's my email, and that's J-O-A-N-N, no E. <laughs> so it's just joanne at joannethelifecoach.com. Share this with your friends and with any other widows you know. And jump into iTunes and write a review. I would love to read some reviews on this episode, on all my episodes. It's what makes me more visible in iTunes for others to find me. It's based on the number of downloads and the number of reviews. So do me that favor. Find your way to iTunes and leave me a review. Go try to find some joy in your life. Enjoy every day. Until next time. 